Welcome to another episode of the Hoop Talk Podcast by fans for fans. I'm Ryan. There's my guy, Jalen. What's up, everybody? This podcast is where we discuss all things basketball, so expect a lot of hot takes, debates, and a true display of basketball knowledge. Let's get right into it. Our topic today is our top five players that we would realistically like to see on another team. So what do we mean by realistically? We're pretty much talking about every player except for LeBron James, the Steph Curry's of the world, the KD's, the Clay Thompson's, pretty much all the top players are excluded from this conversation. And we also took into consideration players who were injured, but they are also actually eligible to be traded and the contract situation of a lot of players as well. So let's start, let's talk about some of these honorable mentions because we have a lot of honorable mentions for this conversation Jalen, I'll let you go first with your honorable mentions because I know you told me before the podcast your list could have been 10 to 15 players. Uh, there, there were 10 to 15 players considered for your list. Yeah, so, I mean, there was a couple of guys that definitely came to mind. I mean, Cam Reddish is a guy for the Atlanta Hawks right now that's being discussed about what his contract situation is going to look like this offseason. Uh, young wings are something that is a low commodity in the league in terms of thing in terms of a guy that a lot of teams have and that puts him in a really good light but there's also a lot of teams that don't have the kind of money to pay an up-and-coming wing like that so it'd be interesting to see a guy like cam on the move um i said it before that i think miles turner on a team like toronto would be perfect they like their their small yet big lineup of like a million six eight guys with dumb length, but I think a shot blocker who can also stretch the floor like Miles Turner would be dope for a team like that. Um, I didn't include him in this, but as a Bulls homer, I have to go ahead and throw it out there that like getting Harrison Barnes on the Bulls would be like the go-to move. Um, I think we're gonna talk about somebody today that I would also like to see on the Bulls, but the biggest thing for the Bulls is having a true three. We don't have an actual true wing. Uh, Javante Green is dope, but if you look at our closing lineup, it's Alex Caruso, Lonzo Ball, Zach Levine at the three, DeMar DeRozan at the four, Nikola Vucevic at the five. It's just extremely small, very run and gun heavy, but an extremely small lineup. If we had a, a certified bona fide three um, next to those guys, I think it would fill things out. And Harrison's big enough where I think you could slide him to the four. DeMar could be a true three for our team. And maybe that would at least work out. So those are just three of the guys that I would like to see on different teams in situations that I think might actually maximize their skill set. I think for me, when you talk about Harrison Barnes, you also have to include uh, other players like De'Aaron Fox and also Marvin Bagley, two players that have been kind of thrown into trade conversations in the past. And it seems like with the Sacramento Kings situation right now, we're not really sure what this team will look like in the near future. It also kind of seems like this team is gearing up for another rebuild, which is crazy to think about because of the fact that they were a rebuilding team four years ago. And this team has also not made the playoffs since 2006. So I think that their idea is to try to get as much as they can for these players. Another player I was thinking about too was Robert Williams from the Boston Celtics. This is a guy that I feel like, can thrive as a defensive anchor on a lot of the top defensive teams in the league right now. You talk, you talk about Golden State, you talk about Phoenix as two of the top defensive teams who are ironically also two of the best teams in the league. 
I, I think his shot blocking ability is amazing. So yeah, those are my three players as well. I mean, I think those are solid. Roberts, obviously the one that kind of sticks out to me just because I've been a big fan of him, um, you know, for the last couple of seasons. And he's a guy who I think, especially last year, we saw came come on strong um, as, a, as a legit shot blocker. Everybody points at the, you know, the nine block game um, in the postseason. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think he's a guy at the center position that kind of has a legitimate bag. He's a decent passer, definitely has the athleticism at the center position that a lot of the more grounded defensive centers don't have, definitely a lot more mobile. So like you said, across the Western Conference, there's a couple of squads that definitely would like a guy like that. I could think of a bunch of Eastern Conference rivals who would love to have um, an upgrade at the center position uh, and be able to do so in a way that maximizes Robert versus on the Celtics, it kind of feels like he's just like another cog in their un, uh, unestablished system, which is, you know, Jason Tatum, isolation. Jalen Brown, isolation. Deep Marcus Smart, three-point shot. You know, it's kind of one of those things that I feel like he just falls into that cog where, you, you know, you can shine in some games and kind of go fall by the wayside in others. So I think that this is the perfect segue to talk about our top five players. Now, disclaimer here at the beginning of the episode, we, we did talk about the five players that we were going to select for our list, but Jalen decided to reveal his teams to me, but I kept my teams a surprise for this episode of the Hoop Talk podcast. So let's begin with Jalen, and I want to hear his first player and, and who he wants his first player to play for. Yeah, so the first guy that I got is Karis LeVert for the Indiana Pacers. Uh, first things first in terms of covering things up, played 24 games so far for the, the Pacers this year. He started in all the games that he's played, 16.4 points per game, 2.8 rebounds per game, 3.3 assists, typical counting stats, 43% from the floor, 31% from three, just the, just the casual stuff in terms of like his overall production. Now, the reason for the Cavs is – relatively simple actually like it's not too complicated they're in a situation where they have to kind of decide on what they want to do with colin sexton and it seems like with the with the the recent success that they've gotten it's very likely that they're going to bring ricky rubio back with the way he's been playing and that puts colin sexton in an interesting spot because that also means that in terms of the kind of money he wants he's more than likely not going to get it from cleveland and the kind of money he probably is going to get offered from cleveland is probably going to be under the circumstance of him coming off the bench, more of a Lou Williams, Jordan Clarkson type of player for them, which for what they need would be a perfect role for Colin Sexton. But considering this would be um, a, a significant demotion for a guy who just averaged 20 plus points per game a season ago, I don't know if that transition is going to be that casual. You also look at the rest of their roster. They don't have a ton of true small forward. They have Isaac Okoro, playing the three, but he's played best in lineups where he's been the two. Dylan Windler has been solid, but we haven't seen enough of him. Outside of that, we know about the big lineups with guys like Laurie Markkinen, Lamar Stevens, uh, Jared Allen, and Evan Mobley, obvious, obviously Kevin Love, who's somehow still on this team. You know, they're a very big squad, but no true threes. Karis LeVert is a true three uh, through and through, or at least can be a legitimate wing uh, for them at that position as a guy who can come off the bench and give them buckets. And it's not like he hasn't done it before. He's done it for Brooklyn before on a productive team. Standing at 6'6", 
he can play that two, three position, come off the bench or start at the wing position if they genuinely need it. But he's just another, he's another create your own shot kind of score that Cleveland needs because with all the big guys, they're, they're, they don't have a lot of perimeter creation. So Karis Levert, um, Cam Reddish, who I talked about earlier, that's another guy who would be like good in this situation of like young squad looking for a guy who can provide scoring off the bench at the wing spot. Like Karis Levert is just like the more uh, defined version of like what Cam Reddish is right now in terms of fitting with Cleveland. Now, I think Karis Levert is a good choice for the Cavaliers, and it almost comes as a surprise because of the fact that the big three that they have in the front court, it's almost come as a shock how successful that they've become with how good the Jared Allen and Evan Mobley have fit have fit together. Kevin Love still on this team and playing how he did when LeBron was there in Cleveland. I think that's another thing to take into consideration. The Cavs are not a team that have a lot of guard depth, but it seems really interesting that Karis LeVert can come in and be a guy that helps provide more scoring off the bench, considering that Cleveland is one of the worst teams in terms of bench scoring in the NBA. Now, it actually it actually sheds some light on the Colin Sexton situation if, if Karis LeVert goes to Cleveland, because it might be a way to signal that Cleveland is not going to pay Colin Sexton. And if that's the case, then you have Ricky Rubio as your starting as your starting guard, you also have Darius Garland as another starting guard. Karras coming off the bench. That's already a very interesting lineup as it is. But then you mix in other young guards like Dylan Windler, like you mentioned earlier. And I think you have a really interesting guard depth that you can get that scoring coming off the bench that you really have not had before with Karras Levert. And hopefully Dylan Windler thrives in the Cavs system because I know he's been there for a couple of years now. We really haven't seen the best of him yet. So maybe maybe him getting more playing time coming off the bench could be that thing that really helps him out in terms of unlocking his potential. But I want to talk about the first player on my list, and it's Jeremy Grant, and I have him going to the Chicago Bulls. His time in Detroit has pretty much given you a, a sample size of what he can do as a number one option. And his first season in Detroit, he was averaging career best in points per game and assists per game. This season, he's putting up similar numbers like last year, and not to mention 14 in the in the 30 games that the Pistons have played in. Jeremy Grant's been their leading scorer, including uh, four of the last five wins for the Detroit Pistons. So he has the experience of carrying an offense from his past two seasons at Detroit, and it makes it interesting that he goes to Chicago because I think his role will be similar to his role in Denver where he won't be the first option, but when the team needs him to go get some points, he's a player that is proving that he can go get some points. I think he also fits in their lineup as well with his defensive versatility, but keep in mind, Jeremy Grant has a year left on his deal. So I think this seems like the perfect time to make something happen. If you're Chicago, and I think if they do get him, their odds to win the championship only increase more with him on the team. So, I mean, when it comes to Jeremy Grant, this kind of is similar to what I was saying about Harrison Barnes in terms of needing like a true three. I think that this is a situation where he can either be a true three or a true or a true like combo forward for us as a three, four. And, 
you kind of mentioned the idea of like him being able to display what he's able to do as a number one option for Detroit. And that's great and all. But in terms of him transitioning to Chicago, I would actually look at what he did in his one solo season with Denver, right? 12 points per game, 3.5 rebounds per game. He was shooting um, 55% effective field goal percentage, which is the third best of his career. Um, and mind you, that was his only year with Denver in comparison to his two better seasons were his half a season with Oklahoma City when he first got moved from Philadelphia and then his first full season in 2018-2019 uh, with Oklahoma City then. But you look at the rest of the stuff with Denver, right? And 38.9% from three on nearly four attempts. That sticks out to me. 47.8% from the field. That sticks out to me as well. Why? Because those are also some of the better overall shooting splits he's had of his career. So as an efficient player, Jeremy Grant has been best when he's been put at the third, fourth, maybe even fifth option. Still scoring double figures, mind you. And that, that solo season, he still averaged 12, uh, 12 points per game. So still averaging double figures. So yes, it zaps away from his scoring. I mean, his first year in Detroit, 22 points per game. But some of the other things that stand out more so is just more activity on the defensive end, much more efficient as a three-point shooter, and that's what we need. And I think he can actually handle a lot more of the ball handling responsibilities now that he's had to be a lead guy for Detroit. I think Bavitt this time with Detroit actually has unlocked more of his game in a way where, yes, they look like gaudy stats because obviously he went from being fourth on the pecking order to being first, but I think it's also made him have to be more responsible with the ball. And with that being the case, I mean, I think he's in a situation he's averaging only uh, 2.1 turnovers a game this season. Granted, he's missed a lot of time. But he's a guy who takes care of the ball well in a reduced role. He shoots the three well. I think the Bulls would be a good team for him, uh, realistically. And I think that his fit can really help out their defense, too, because I think it unlocks – you know, a lot of potential for the lineup in the front court of him, DeMar DeRozan, and Nikola Vucevic as well. Definitely think that that could be a much better closing lineup than what the Chicago Bulls currently have with Zach Levine playing the three. You get Jeremy Grant as a guy that can play multiple positions on the floor. That'll definitely help out with your closing lineup. Jalen, who is the second player that you realistically want to see on another team? Yeah, so I think I'm going to stick – with the the forward position, um, since that's kind of the topic we're on right now, and I'll go. I'm gonna go with the homie Lukens Dort. Was a big fan of him um, in the series. I believe it was two seasons ago at this point. Um, against Houston, that was his coming out party, right? But the dude is a Mack truck. I was a fan of him, uh, probably even more so in college, and thought it was like mad disrespectful that he didn't get drafted out of Arizona State. Just didn't seem like it made any sense. And he's been he's been a godsend for Oklahoma City, and he's on a pretty solid contract as well. But this season, averaging career highs in 17.2 points per game, 3.9 rebounds per game, nearly two assists, nearly a steal a game, which is solid as well. One of the bigger things that stands out more than anything to me is um, the 33.5% the from three on nearly eight attempts. Not great shooting splits. But the biggest thing that stands out to me is his rookie year, he was taking just under three a game. Two seasons later, he's shooting almost eight. So the volume is there. Um, and the team that I have him going to 
it might be a little odd, but um, I'm going with the Toronto Raptors on this one. I know that Lucas Dort is a defensive specialist style player that is starting to unlock a little bit more of his offensive game. But the biggest thing that Toronto wants right now is length. Um, let me give you a little length here. Lucas Dort is a guy who is six foot three with a plus wingspan, which honestly is basically the first thing you write down in your application to become a Toronto Raptor nowadays. So putting that in perspective, yeah, it gets a little tricky when you talk about the fact that OG Ananobi is still in the squad. I understand that Fred Van Vliet is pretty much solidified at that one spot. Um, but then after that, it gets kind of tricky when you talk about their overall depth because Scotty Barnes, the question with him still, I believe, is is he supposed to be the filler uh, the filler in for Pascal Siakam, somebody I think we're probably going to talk about a little bit later, um, as a guy who played at, at Pascal's four spot when Pascal was injured. Uh, Gary Trent Jr., there's the whole thing with him in terms of, like, is he going to continue to start? He started um, in 26 of the 27 games that he's played so far this season. But realistically, is he better as a scorer off the bench for them? There's a lot of different things going on. But more than anything, Toronto wants length. They want versatility. They're not worried about the center position too much. And, again, wings are a commodity that are not a dime a dozen by any means. And hilariously enough, Toronto has all of them, or at least a lot of them, right? So why not just, you know, keep stacking those Legos up? I think that that would be an interesting fit. Did you have any ideas on maybe somewhere else that he would fit or just, like, your thoughts on Lucas Dort as, like, a player? I just have some additional thoughts with Lucas Dort as a player because I think his talent as a defender is overlooked because he has proven in the past that he can lock down on defense. Now, it's also really interesting because he wants to expand his game that we can also call him a 3 and D guy. And you talk about the increase in three-point shots that he's taken, I think you said it was from like three to eight this season. It's all about confidence, and I think he's become a more confident shooter. I think also the situation with him in Toronto, I think it will be interesting because he could – fit their system with everything that you've described. I just have to see what a lineup with him looks like next to Scotty Barnes, because I think as a top rebounding team that, that Toronto is, it does make sense that Lugan Stort would fit on this team. But where is that leave players like OG Ananobi? Where is that players? Where is that leave players like Gary Trent Jr.? So I think that's really the only concern that I have for him being on the team. My second player is uh, TJ McConnell, and he's from the Indiana Pacers right now, but I think he would fit better on the Phoenix Suns. Now, I think this is interesting for two reasons. One, he is in the first year of his four-year deal, which is worth $35 million they signed in the offseason with the Pacers. And two, he could be done for the season after he just had surgery on his hand. Now, the timeline for the injury was 10 to 12 weeks, and that was reported on December 7th. Another thing to consider is that injured players are on the market and they also could be traded. Like I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the episode, you could look at Chris Porzingis when he was traded from the New York Knicks to the Dallas Mavericks in 2018. Now, Jalen, you asked me yesterday a very interesting question. Why the hype over TJ McConnell? Well, I can explain. TJ McConnell has made a name for himself on the Pacers as a playmaker and a solid defender. He also led the NBA in total steals 
last season. And he's giving you that ability to put up some points coming off the bench. Remember last year, he had a triple-double, 16 points, 13 assists, 11 rebounds. He did all that coming off the bench. So I I think his fit with Phoenix is interesting because Phoenix is a contending team, and I think they could always use another playmaker coming off the bench, but not to mention they could also use his defense. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Phoenix is one of the best defensive teams in the league. And I don't think it's likely that McConnell sticks around for the rebuild in Indiana because I just don't think he fits the timeline for the Indiana Pacers. So I think with the Pacers entering this rebuild, I think a lot of teams are going to be going after some of their top players. We mentioned Sabonis. We also mentioned Miles Turner. You mentioned earlier Karis LeVert. Malcolm Brogdon is probably going to be in, that, be in that conversation as well. I think TJ McConnell is officially entering this conversation. I think Phoenix is just interesting just because of some of the things that they've done recently, right? Uh, bringing uh, Cameron Payne back, I think, was huge in terms of what he was able to do last postseason. And in terms of how he's played so far this season, still doing things to keep the ship afloat when uh, coming off the bench for Chris Paul, averaging 10.5 points per game, 3.2 rebounds, 3.5 um, assists per game, shooting the ball relatively well as, uh, on top of that, which is good. Um, so that's kind of interesting. You throw it on top of them, picking Landry Shaman up in the offseason. Obviously, we know they got D-Book. Chris Paul still signed for at least like another season or two. I believe it's like another two or three seasons. Alfred Payton's still on this roster. I I find it just a little interesting. I don't necessarily question the logic. I just think they have enough guards on there. And I think the defense, in terms of them being a top defensive team, has more to do with guys like JaVale McGee, the growth of a guy like DeAndre Ayton, the play defensively of like legitimate three and D wings, which again, you want to talk about teams that like have all the wings. Phoenix is one of those teams, you know, Mikhail Bridges. Jay Crowder, which is like, again, kind of similar to Danny Green, one of like the prototypical three and D guys nowadays. Um, uh, Cam Johnson on top of that. I mean, I, th- I think that you can never go wrong with adding a strength on a strength. I just I think the interesting thing would be maybe what they are willing to give up because Jalen Smith is not a really high commodity right now. And I don't think Dario Sarge would fit next to a guy like. DeMontis Sabonis, for example, if he like stuck around for the rebuild or if that was the guy they decided to build around. So that would be interesting. Just the team I would throw out there and I kind of just want to get your response to it is um is Milwaukee. Um, The reason why I picked Milwaukee is because of the fact that if you really look at their roster across the board, outside of Giannis, um, Drew Holiday, obviously, and I would say Chris Middleton as well, and to a lesser degree, Brooke Lopez. This team does not really have very great defensive personnel, like at all. Pat Connaughton and Grayson Allen at the two-guard position, not really great defenders at all. George Hill is, like, solid, but, like, again, that's a guy that's kind of scary to play in the playoffs. We know he has kind of demons when it comes to the postseason. Bobby Portis, by no stretch, is anybody asking to be a defensive player of the year level uh, candidate at all. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins, same thing. Dante DiVincenzo is interesting in terms of what he'll be able to do when he comes back, but the key thing is that he's coming off a significant injury that's had him out for a while. But I just think that, and this is half the reason why I think that Giannis Antetokounmpo so far is leading the defensive player of the year race is because when you look at his roster, 
And you also factor in that like Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton have both missed like significant time, right? And Brooke Lopez has been out basically since the first game. And Dante DiVincenzo hasn't played all year. Like considering his roster, their team being top 10 in defensive rating has so much to do with the versatility of Giannis Antetokounmpo. Not only playing his significant offensive role, but he's he's basically the rim defender shot blocker that they typically ask Brooke Lopez to be, while also being a guy that can step out on the perimeter and defend one through four as well. So if you get another defensive guy guard-wise, like you said, they can also play make or kind of stir the pot in TJ McConnell. I mean, now you're, you know, now you're cooking with high grease when you talk about the idea of having a team that has a significant defensive identity and he gives them like a legit guy who can keep things afloat when, you know, Drew goes to the bench, for example. I think the thing with TJ sticking around for Phoenix or going to Phoenix, should I say, I don't see Alfred Payton sticking around on this team. I think that if you think of the defensive versatility that, TJ provides off the bench along with what he can do in spurts offensively. I think it's, it's better than what Alfred can do. In my opinion, if you talk about the bucks, I mean, you could honestly say the bucks have guard depth. It's just most of their guards are coming off of injuries. You mentioned Dante DiVincenzo, you know, he's coming back from an injury as well. And you also mentioned, you know, other guys that were, not getting a lot of playing time on this team. Rodney Hood, George Hill's been kind of getting some playing. He's been getting a lot of playing time, should I say, coming off the bench. But I think when you talk about defensive versatility, adding a guy like TJ McConnell will lift a lot of the weight off of Giannis's shoulders, considering Brooke Lopez has only played in one game this year. And you, you could argue the Bucks are asking Giannis to do a lot more than what he is asked to do normally. And that's maybe, and that's mainly because Brooke Lopez has been out. So maybe if you have Giannis along with TJ McConnell and Pat Connington as that second unit, and as, as assuming Giannis plays like forty minutes a game, that could really be interesting to see the defensive versatility of a Bucks team that's already pretty good on defense, but now you add another great defender in TJ McConnell to help lock things down. And I think that this team gets even better defensively. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I kind of, I mean, I guess I agree with the statement considering that, I mean, regardless of each team, I think he fits seamlessly. Your point about Phoenix, I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you talk about the idea that, you know, I'm not saying that Alfred Payton's a better player than TJ McConnell at all. Um, I don't believe that at all. I just think that in terms of players that translate to a potential rebuild, I guess, you could argue that neither team really has great assets for a trade like that. Um, so it would kind of just come down to draft picks. So that's where we kind of got to get in the nitty gritty in terms of trying to figure out how that would go down. But um, either way, I mean, I see your point. I think TJ McConnell is one of those players. I think you can drop on any roster and he'll fit. It's just about the, the way he's utilized at the end of the day, that'll determine, you know, how impactful he can really be as an acquisition. I agree with that point because I think TJ is somebody that can be useful on any team, especially with what he can provide on defense. And especially he does all of it coming off the bench. That's really interesting. And I think that he could honestly make an impact anywhere he goes. I think if Phoenix wants to make another title run, this is a player that I think they should get for their roster to boost up 
their already impressive defense. Moving on to the third player on each of our lists. So who is your third player? Yeah, so I've, I'm going to move to the big man spot for a sec, and I'm going to go with Christian Wood of the Houston Rockets. This is no disrespect to Wood in terms of wanting to see him on a different team. This is actually me wanting to see him unlocked in a way where he can be a part of a team that can be a legitimate threat in the playoffs. Obviously, Houston is far from that. And with guys like Eric Gordon, John Wall, obviously Christian Wood on the, on the squad. And it, it does go deeper than that in terms of the kind of assets they have, in terms of older guys they can maybe look to move on from. Christian Wood, obviously, to me, I think is the most talented of the group of guys that they could possibly shop for a large amount of draft picks or a couple of young assets and stuff like that. And the team that I went with was the Charlotte Hornets, and I felt like this one was like a no-brainer in terms of the fit because they need a center terribly. You know what I mean? They're getting a lot of, a lot of minutes from Plumlee, a lot of small ball, five minutes from um, from uh, Miles Bridges, uh, things like that, um, and that's kind of you know even you know even some of the rookies have played like JT Thor has gotten some minutes as of late. That has more to do with like the COVID protocols and stuff, but like that just goes to like prove my point that like once it gets to when it comes to center depth, they've whiffed on guys like Vernon Carey and you know um, situations where. I just don't feel like they have great a great center rotation. And they had a chance at Rashawn Holmes and in terms of money-wise, and they settled for, you know, paying Terry Rozier and bringing a guy like Kelly Oubre in, which is fine, but the center position was a lot bigger of a deal than getting more perimeter play. And um, whether it was Rashawn Holmes choosing to go back to Sacramento or just Charlotte choosing not to pay him, they whiffed out on that. But Christian Wood is a pretty great equivalent, if not maybe better offensively, which completely suits what Charlotte wants to do because they would like to end every night winning 150 to whatever. You know what I mean? So, you know, the fact that Christian Wood's averaging nearly 17 points per game, 11 rebounds um, per game, shooting pretty well from the field so far this season at 46.3%, not great, but he's doing okay. I think if you had a real setup, man, like like LaMelo Ball, I think that efficiency would go up. And him being able to stretch the floor is huge, too. So I just want to see Christian Wood in a winning situation. If you know Christian Wood's story, you know that it took him a long, long time to really get in the mix as a legitimate NBA player. And now he's a part of a rebuilding Houston Rockets team that kind of doesn't even know what direction they're trying to head in. Uh, that can be shown by the fact that they, like, went on a seven to eight game winning streak in the midst of, you know, a couple of games, a, a couple of weeks where arguably they probably should have been trying to tank and keep up with the Oklahoma City Thunder, for example, you know. But, um, yeah, I think Christian Wood on a team that could be a legitimate playoff team like Charlotte would be solid. I think what's so interesting about Charlotte is the fact that, yeah, they don't have a center. They really don't have somebody that – has been able to lock down the five and that's been, that's been a recurring issue for a while. But the thing is you look at the draft this year, they drafted JT Thor out of Auburn. Who's been a really solid prospect. Also Kai Jones from Texas. We really have not seen much of Kai Jones. Also Nick Richards from Kentucky, who's now in his second year and he's been getting a lot of minutes at the set at the center position. So 
the big thing is the move for Christian Wood makes sense. I just don't think the Rockets are willing to give him up. And it's mainly because of the fact that they're going through this rebuild. And I think they want to have a big three of their own of younger guys who can, who can be the future of this franchise. I think their big three right now is Jalen Green, Kevin Porter Jr. And Christian Wood. That's what I think their big three is. I feel like you could throw in Alper and Sangoon in that conversation as well, given how he's been playing. So I think that it's just about the willingness of the Rockets to either keep or trade away Christian Wood. Because I think when his contract's up, I think he's going to get a huge payday because he's he's a guy who is not getting talked about nearly enough for the stuff that he's doing offensively for the Houston Rockets. And I think on a rebuilding team, he he has to be a featured point in this offense. He has to be a focus of this Houston Rockets offense. And I feel like he can also get that same attention with the Charlotte Hornets because of their lack of a center as well. So I feel like he fits in both situations. I just don't think the Houston Rockets are going to give him up because it seems like they're going full rebuild at this point, even though that eight game winning streak made it seem like they weren't going to my third player. Now I'm going to talk about buddy healed and the, the team I want to see him on is the Minnesota Timberwolves. Now we've heard buddy healed in trade rumors for about four years. And this move to Minnesota makes sense for buddy healed this year. It's actually safe to say that the Timberwolves have looked, a lot better as a team this year than last year. We've seen Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, and Anthony Edwards on the floor together, and they've helped this team win a lot of games. You also have Pat Beverly. You also have Nas Reed and Jared Vanderbilt giving you solid minutes off the bench. Nas Reed and Jared Vanderbilt um, and Patrick Beverly, you know, all known as defensive guys. And, you know, you get a veteran presence, another veteran presence, should I say, in Patrick Beverly, and that really helps out a young team like the Minnesota Timberwolves. I think that this team has a lot of potential to make the playoffs. And I think that right now they are a lock for the play-in tournament. Now, where does Buddy Heald fit in in all of this? Buddy Heald gives this team more shooting coming off the bench. He's a career 43% shooter from the field and 40% shooter from three. Not to mention he's the third leading scorer for the Kings coming off the bench. And Minnesota is third in the NBA in bench scoring. So what do we always talk about for a playoff run? As much as I've been talking about Minnesota as a playoff caliber team, what's the thing we always talk about in the playoffs? Depth. You can make an argument if you really believe in the potential of the Minnesota Timberwolves, they have a lot of depth, and Buddy Heal is just going to add to that depth. If Heal puts up the numbers that he's pulling up now on the Kings for the Timberwolves, it makes Minnesota much more of a dangerous uh, playoff caliber team. I gotta give it to you on on this one. This this one's really interesting because I I think that's a great point. I, I mean, I just think overall, it's a pretty solid point when you talk about the idea that right, like Patrick Beverly. In certain instances, we, let's look at what he's done so far. He's been a starter most of this season. Next to D'Angelo Russell, started in eighteen of the twenty-two games he's been on the floor. So we're essentially talking about Malik Beasley being the primary decision maker point guard wise off the bench unless we're having some like you know cross um some cross lineups where you know uh, with the staggered minutes maybe D'Angelo Russell plays next to Malik but 
essentially it sounds like Malik Beasley would just straight up be the decision maker in a lot of these situations coming off the bench. So that still puts you in a situation where you still need other guys to stretch the floor because next to him is guys like Jaden McDaniels, who's shooting under 28% from three. Jared Vanderbilt, who's been getting solid minutes, shooting under 25% from three. Uh, Nas Reed has been pretty good this season, actually, um, especially in terms of shooting the ball, um, but not somebody that you're going to play through, right? So essentially the second lineup, the secondary lineup, they're getting a lot of points as a group, but the lead guy that's kind of carrying that is Malik Beasley. So like you said, in terms of being able to make Malik's job a little bit easier and open up the court, I mean, Buddy would actually be kind of cool, low-key. You actually be – and I think the the more interesting thing when you talk about staggered lineups, right, because there's probably situations where Patrick plays next to Malik. So what about the idea of staggered lineups where Patrick plays next to Buddy? That's even – that covers up his flaw by giving you a defensive guard next to him. Patrick can still be the, the lead decision-maker, so to speak, but – Buddy doesn't have nearly as much um, – he's not nearly as much of a, a, a defensive liability in a lineup like that. And he's still put in a position where, you know, Patrick Beverly's not going to be a crazy scorer. So guess who gets to be the scorer in situations like that? Well, Buddy does. So it actually kind of translates pretty well. So that's pretty cool. Good one. I like that one. Yeah, and I actually uh, made an error. You're right. Uh, Patrick Beverly's been in most of the starting lineups this year. You mentioned Malik Beasley was coming off the bench as well. So I think that that's actually going to factor in in my decision as well, because I think there's a lineup where you could have Pat Beverly coming off the bench next to Buddy Heald, like you mentioned. And even though Buddy is not a strong defender, you have Pat Beverly, who is a strong defender. Even though Pat Beverly isn't a strong shooter, you have Buddy Heald, who's a strong shooter. So I think that's interesting when you think about the lineups that Minnesota can kind of play with here and see what they can do with, with these lineups, because even other players that we haven't talked about yet, like Josh Akogi, who's another solid defender. Like that's a guy you can insert in the second unit as somebody who can be a strong defender. So with, with Buddy Heald, it not only gets him out of a bad situation in Sacramento, but it brings him into a different situation where Minnesota is a team that is playing above their expectations and actually have the chance to make a solid playoff run with multiple guys producing on the floor. I mean, you talk about D'Lo, you talk about Carl Anthony Towns. You also mentioned Anthony Edwards, who, by the way, has been incredible this year. And then Malik Beasley, who's always been underrated as a scorer. Not a lot of people talk about his scoring ability, He's been mainly doing that coming off the bench for the Minnesota Timberwolves. But I think it's going to be interesting when you factor in Buddy Heald as well, because I think he could also boast up those three-point numbers for Minnesota. They're only shooting about 34% from three as a team. And Buddy Heald, like I mentioned earlier, has been a pretty consistent three-point shooter throughout his entire career. I know one man can't really make the difference, but I think it can slowly build up those numbers. So I think he definitely helps this team out in a lot of ways. Yeah, that was I, I like that one. That might out, out of the three so far, I like the other two. Um, especially because you know I'm not super mad at the idea of getting Jeremy Grant on my team. But I think of all the ones in terms of seamless fits, although TJ McConnell is maybe the the best player in terms of dropping him into any system, 
the buddy heel specifically to Minnesota one actually, I think I like that one the best so far out of all of ours, honestly. So Jalen, who is the fourth player on your list that you would realistically like to see on another team? Yeah, man. So I talked about it earlier, kind of threw shade in uh earlier in the episode talking about Pascal Siakam. So I might as well just go ahead and get him out the way now. And um I want I want to see Pascal Siakam on a team like Utah because my thought, my logic behind this was that I felt like the best version of Pascal Siakam we saw was when he was the third option behind Kyle Lowry and Kawhi Leonard. That was the best overall version of Pascal Siakam. And that was in 2019, 20, uh, 2020, which was his sole all-star year, right? 22.9 points per game, 7.3, uh, point, uh, 7.3 rebounds per game um, that season. Uh, one steal, nearly a block per game, 3.5 assists. Like it was just, he was just overall playing really well despite being in a relatively like reduced role, right? And oh, or am I mistaken? That might have been the is that the first year after Kawhi left? I just want to make sure. Let me double check that real quick just to make certain. So yeah, that actually was the first year after Kawhi left. So let me let me edit that real quickly, just real fast. Even with that being the case, 16.9 points per game, 6.9 rebounds per game, which is still up there in terms of his career consistency, 3.1 assists per game. This actually helps my point a little bit more. His best three-point shooting season, nearly 37% um, from beyond the arc, still on nearly 12 attempts. In terms of being an offensive uh, threat, of nearly twelve attempts per game as a as a scorer, um, so you throw that together, right? And I think that Utah works because the man in question for Utah, there's two people that come to mind in terms of their only real trade assets, right? Bojan Bogdanovic and Joe Ingles. Out of those two guys, the guy who I think is most likely to be moved on from, especially when considering their contract, is Bojan. I think Bojan's the one. Because I think that Joe Ingles, yes, is on the older end, but he gives them a secondary tertiary ball handler next to guys like uh, Donovan Mitchell, next to guys like Mike Conley, um, stirs the pot for a guy uh, like Jordan Clarkson where he could just be a microwave scorer and not be so focused on trying to run the offense like a pure point guard, right? So he does a lot of the ball handling responsibilities. Bozon Bogdanovich is pretty much another scorer on the team that Utah doesn't need. And when you look at everything, I'll go to I'll go to Bojan's stats real quick. When you look at everything um, from points and through through and through, Bojan averages less points per game, 17.2 points per game, less assists per game at 1.6, less rebounds by nearly nearly half uh, at 3.7 rebounds per game. It's just one of those things where Pascal is a better player, provides defense, which they desperately need because when you look at everybody outside of Rudy Gobert and Royce O'Neal, nobody's really a top-notch defender. And then you throw on top of that the fact that Bojan needs the ball to be effective while Pascal Siakam's probably best season outside of his all-star year was arguably the year where he had the ball like the least in terms of the pecking order of offense while still being like legitimately featured. So I think he could still legitimately be like the third or fourth option offensively for this Utah team and still have a way more impactful effect on their, mainly their defense than 
Bojan has on their offense, for example. And they need more help on the defensive end. So it seems like it would kind of add up that way. Sorry for the uh, the stats mishap. I had a little bit of a brain fart there. But nonetheless, I just believe that Pascal Siakam is a better player for what Utah needs than Bojan Bogdanovich. That would be not a straight-up trade, but, I mean, that would be a pretty decent exchange. And I think it's interesting that you bring up Bojan as well as Pascal Siakam. Looking at uh, Pascal first, I think the interesting thing with him is that if you have Pascal Siakam, that makes this team a lot better on the defensive side, considering that he's a guy that could play multiple positions on the floor. He could be a three, he could be a four, he can also play as a small ball five for when Rudy Gobert needs to take a break and Pascal Siakam can kind of take over that role as the five. So I think that's really interesting. I think the thing with Bojan, I look at him more as a solid three-point shooter. He's somebody that he's always been able to get open on the corner. He's been he's always been able to be a guy that is a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. I just don't think Utah is the best fit for him right now because I don't think he fits what they're looking for. I think he would fit on a team that needs shooting. Honestly, the Lakers would be one of the better fits for him because that team desperately needs shooting. So I do think that he has been able to make an impact throughout his career, mainly as a three-point shooter. But when you look at Pascal's fit on this team, it makes sense that you want to swap out Pascal for Bojan Bogdanovic because of Pascal's defensive, uh, defensive potential. I want to talk about my fourth player and it's actually Terrence Ross, and I have him going to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, this move is interesting, and I kind of want to use the reasoning that you had for Karis LeVert earlier in the episode because I think Terrence Ross can be very effective coming off the bench as he's been with the Orlando Magic. You want, you want to talk about somebody who's been a microwave scorer coming off the bench for the Orlando Magic. Terrence Ross, much like... Buddy Heald is the third leading scorer on his team, and he's doing it coming off the bench. Now, you obviously factor in the contract situation with Colin Sexton. Most likely, I don't think Cleveland resigns him. But who would have thought Cleveland was the third best team in the Eastern Conference right now? I wouldn't have thought that. And, you know, you talk about bringing in another veteran like Terrence Ross, much like Kara Silver, he can give you that microwave scoring coming off the bench. And Cleveland, is one of the worst bench scoring teams in the NBA. Now, like I mentioned with Buddy Heald, one man can't change it all by himself, but he can gradually improve it. So that's my reasoning for Terrence Ross being on the Cleveland Cavaliers. I would also use that same reasoning for him going to the Miami Heat, a team that's also in the mixture for a playoff spot. Um, but I think that that reasoning of him being a microwave scorer coming off the bench is the reasoning why he could fit on either team, Cleveland or Miami. So I'm going to address Miami more so because we kind of already talked about Cleveland to a certain extent in terms of just like what they need. And I think your point is valid in terms of just the fact that like, yeah, they need another scorer. They need another wing creator. That's the, that's the key part. I know I kept focusing on the idea of them needing to fill the three, the three spot, but the truth is they just need another legitimate wing score because right now it's, Darius Garland primarily, Ricky Rubio, who's been playing pretty much above his weight class as of late, especially in comparison to past seasons, 
and relying on Isaac Okoro to grow up quickly in year two, right? So the idea would be to, to get somebody who's been a little bit, little bit more established within the role of being a legitimate scoring threat off the bench, which is what you were talking about. Nobody better, you know, than to a certain extent than guys like, you know, if you know, there's the there's the Lou Will Jamal Crawford like tier, and then there comes those other guys like the Montrez Harrells, the Karis Leverts, the um, in this case, you know, we talk about we talk about Terrence Ross, guys in that ilk that maybe don't get the kind of recognition as six men. Jordan Clarkson is another one of those like top tier guys as well. But like maybe don't get the kind of recognition as six men the way like you're on a consistent basis. But overall, especially in Terrence Ross's case, a guy who like can light it up without even being asked, I would say, honestly. But when we talk about Miami, I think the funny thing about them is just they've gotten very significant offensive output from Max Struess, question mark, which has been like really interesting. And um, I just wonder if the Terrence Ross thing is too much of a step on your toes thing with Max because Max has like really played well and really played well this year. And um, I understand from a win now perspective, getting a veteran guy like that to step in and he is relatively consistent in terms of being a microwave guy is huge. Especially when you talk about the fact that Jimmy is, you know, he's already missing time, but he's just bound to miss time and age with age um, that gives you a chance to give guys like Kyle Lowry a night off. Um, you know, I think, I think the Miami one is tricky, but I don't hate it. If that makes sense. Like, I think that the fit is one of those where it's obvious, right? That the, in terms of a depth standpoint, there's nobody that comes off the bench for you besides Tyler hero. Who's actually been starting more as of late due to their injuries and COVID protocol situation. But outside of maybe him and then, you know, Max Struess, their bench doesn't really scream of, like, top-tier talent. And Terrence Ross is a guy who can, like, give you a bucket in a heartbeat. So I think on paper it makes sense. I just wonder how they go about doing it. But their coach is Eric Spolster, so that helps. And I think when you look at Miami as a team overall, you know, I mentioned Cleveland's bench scoring and how they weren't one of, they were one of the worst bench scoring teams in the league. You also look at Miami – they are also closer to the bottom. They actually rank 22nd in the NBA in bench scoring, averaging 34.4 points a game, which is weird because they have Tyler Hero, who is averaging 20 points a game right now. And you also talk about Max Struess. And I mentioned this when we talked about the Summer League a while back with Theus from Slam. I mentioned Max Struess was going to be that guy that I think could have an impactful season. And he's doing just that like he's playing up some pretty good numbers for the Miami Heat coming off the bench also another guy Omer Yurtsevin as well lock, locking down the five position uh as a member of the second unit he's actually le- he's actually leading Miami in blocks right now um so both the guys that I predicted would be uh solid players for, for the Miami Heat this year really solid players right now for the Miami <laughs> Heat this year so um you know, you look at that and then Terrence Ross as a player, I think where he fits will be interesting because I think he fits more on Cleveland with the amount of microwave scoring ability that he that he provides. I think he fits a little bit better on that team than he does with Miami, given what you mentioned with 
Max Struess and how he's been able to kind of shine coming off the bench. And then Tyler Hero as well, who's been having a great season. So I feel like he might be stepping on their toes. Like you mentioned earlier with Max Struess, I think he'd also be stepping on Tyler Hero's toes as well. So I think for him to go to a team like Cleveland, where they're not that, where they don't have a lot of production coming off the bench, for him to kind of be a veteran presence off the bench, much like Ricky Rubio was for most of the season, but also provide that scoring ability, I think that's what's going to really help Cleveland in the long term. Term if they really want to make this playoff push happen. Yeah, just before we move off this real quick, I think that's a great point. First of all, it's just like, what does Cleveland want to do? Because they've been so good this season. And you're talking about a team that has not been very good in the last couple of years now. And they're they're in their first situation smelling success, you know, on a non-LeBron James-led squad. And the question you have to ask yourself is, with the assets you have, you know, they're coming up on a summer where, you know, obviously they have to pay uh, – they have to pay Darius Garland soon, but they'll still have about 50 mil or maybe a little bit less to be able to throw out there, which is essentially um, in the ballpark of a max cap, sp- uh, cap slot. You throw on top of that the idea of being able to get another legitimate guy in the draft this year. So the question is they have to ask themselves, do they truly want to commit to being a win-now team just because they've smelled the roses a little bit and kind of go full in and be a buyer at the trade deadline, or are they a team that realizes that maybe they're, you know, striking while the iron is hot, but it's still a little too early and make the decision to maybe let the gas off a little bit. That decision more than anything will honestly influence not only how they trade, but if they trade anybody in terms of the trade deadline. So I think that, I think that that's a solid point right there by itself because Cleveland is in a really weird spot because I don't think they expect it to be this good. You know, I think they were hoping to be improved, but I don't think they were expecting to be this good, especially on the uh, especially uh, the defensive end. I mean, they, they've showed up way better than I think people could have anticipated before. And so I think that's a great point, too. So looking at our fifth and final players on each of our lists, Jalen, who is the last player that you realistically want to see on another team? Yeah, man. So the the last guy that I've got is uh, DeJounte Murray. And you kind of talked me off my horse on this one. We talked about this one off camera a little bit. And um, I was talking about him being on the Memphis Grizzlies because I thought that as a secondary ball handler, as a guy who provides defensive prowess, he could be a dude that covers up for a lot of John Morant's, you know, defensive deficiencies. And I still believe that that can be the case. But the rise of Desmond Bain, though, I kind of had to do a little bit more digging before we hopped on the pod. And Desmond Bain has been a legitimate player in the second season. And he was showing little flashes here and there during the summer league that he kind of, you know, he's in his bag a little bit as a ball handler. The three-point shooting is already there. And it was showing he was already showing signs of that last season. Um, so with that being the case, realistically, DeJounte Murray is a guy I want to see on a different team strictly out of the fact that I don't think he gets a lot of love for the way he's been playing this season. 18 points, eight, uh, 18 points per game, 8.4 rebounds per game, 8.6 assists. Like, dude is having one of those, like, undercover Russell Westbrook triple-double type seasons. 
and nobody's really talking about him because he plays on San Antonio, and not only is San Antonio a pretty like vanilla team in general, but also they haven't been very good this season. So, I mean, he's overall having a pretty solid year. Um, not shooting the ball too well, which is another reason why I think Desmond Bain might actually fit better next to Jaw than him. But, like, let's go through some of these teams, right? Like, could he be a cool player to pick up if you're Indiana in terms of a rebuild? Could that be a guy that you might take a look at in terms of a, a terms of legitimately putting yourself in a position to start from scratch um, at the point guard position? That would be interesting. The Pistons, um, as a younger squad, I think that would be maybe an interesting thing to put him next to a guy like Kay Cunningham, have some super length in the backcourt. And you consider that the Killian Hayes pairing with Cade isn't really working too much. You know what I mean? It's not doing his thing too well for them. Um, so I think that would be an interesting one as well as a guy who could be a legitimate point guard and help defensively on that team. Um, I mean, let's see. Let me even go. Let me even see if there's any West, other West teams that would be interesting. Um I think in the starting lineup next to Luca for Dallas, that would be kind of cool. I think that would actually be really good um, because Luca, Luca and DeJounte's passing ability, along with the fact that Luca, we know as an ISO scorer, DeJounte Murray won't have to worry about being super effective on the ball. Now, the biggest thing with DeJounte is he's going to have to be a better three point shooter to be next to Luca. But defensively, that's where he really, you know, really makes up. I think you can say maybe the same thing about DeJounte next to De'Aaron, too, but there's already too much guard nonsense going on over there, so I ain't even going to do him like that. But, yeah, I, I, I just named a couple teams off just because after you, you kind of talked me off my horse, which I respect because that was you made a lot of good points about um him on Memphis maybe being a little too log jammy, but just – just out of the fact that the dude is a really solid player and it's kind of being thrown under the covers because of the fact that he plays for San Antonio. I just wish that he was on a, on a better team or at least a team where he could shine a little bit more. One of the things I mentioned to Jalen off pod when he brought up the idea of De- of uh, Deontay Murray going to the Memphis Grizzlies, I thought, well, where is what what's John Morant's fit on this team then? Where's Dylan Brooks going to go? Um, those were two of my main concerns. Also, I wasn't I wasn't sure how Deontay would fit on this team, considering it seems like the Memphis Grizzlies don't have a solidifiable three on this team. They have a lot of twos. They have a lot of fours. They really don't have like a solidifiable three. You can argue it's Dylan Brooks in certain situations. You can argue it's Zaire Williams, but Zaire Williams is a combo three-four. I think Deontay Murray fits better on the Dallas Mavericks, especially next to Luca, like you were mentioning earlier. The one thing with Dallas, though, would be where does Jalen Brunson fit in all of this? Because Jalen Brunson could be a guy that comes off off the bench and leads the second unit. But there was something that we kind of talked about off pod with the Dallas Mavericks is that outside of Luca, when Luca goes to the bench, this team struggles on the court. The plus minus for Luca on and off the court is significant for the Dallas Mavericks. It's almost as significant as Trey Young when he goes off the court to the bench for the Atlanta Hawks. So 
I, I think the big thing, if, if Deontay can put up the undercover Russell Westbrook season that he's been playing up in Dallas, I think that's what's going to make Dallas an even more dangerous team than before, considering you have Deontay Murray, who's been playing up, who, who's been playing up some triple doubles quietly and nobody's really talking about it. And then he can also play defense on the side to complement the fact that Luca's a pretty good shooter. And he's not that he's not that great on defense, but he's a really good shooter. Deontay Murray is a great defender, but he's not that great of a shooter. I think that would complement well. I mean, he's he's a he would be a solid two guard next to Luca. And I think you could make a better case for him being on Dallas than you would with Memphis, considering that if you look at Deontay Murray as a two, Memphis is already locked up at that position as it is with Dylan Brooks, Desmond Bain, DeAnthony Melton, a lot of other players as well. You could mention to fill the two. If Deontay Murray was was used as a three, is where it's going to be interesting if he went to Memphis. So that that was that was the case that I was making for Jalen off the podcast. I want to talk about my last player that I would realistically like to see on another team. It's CJ McCollum, and I want to see him on the Philadelphia 76ers. Now, this just seems like the perfect fit for CJ McCollum because I think you're looking for another high-level score if you're the Philadelphia 76ers. You look at Joel Embiid, you look at Tobias Harris, they're considered the only high-level scorers for the Philadelphia 76ers. I think you look at other guys like Seth Curry and Tyrese Maxey, they've been playing well as well. But I think that I think Philadelphia is really missing the third piece to this big three because you can argue at times Seth Curry has been the third best player. You can argue at times that Tyrese Maxey has been the third best player. You could even argue at times that Shake Milton has been the third best player. But you put CJ McCollum on this team right now. I think that this puts Philadelphia in a situation where they are Eastern Conference Finals contenders automatically. And I think that you put McCollum next to Embiid and Harris, I think defensively it works better. I'm interested to see where, or should I say if, the 76ers are pushing to make this signing because I think when we talk about C.J. McCollum and the Portland Trailblazers, you could do a C.J. for Ben Simmons deal, and I think that's what, could entice Portland because Portland is one of the worst defensive teams in the league. And I think Ben Simmons can help, can help out with that. It's just, what do you want to do if you're Philadelphia with Ben Simmons's contract? Because Ben Simmons is still on the Philadelphia 76ers, but he's not playing. So it's more or less, what do you want to do if you're the Philadelphia 76ers? That's going to determine or not, CJ McCollum goes to Philadelphia. Um, that's a lot to unpack, but it also is one of those things that like this trade discussion for them has been like around for a while. So um, I don't have too much to add. The one thing I will just say overall is that it seems like the perfect scenario, right? We've been saying that for months now that if it weren't Dame to, to Philly, then CJ to Philly, still makes perfect sense. Um, the rise of Tyrese Maxey has made that kind of interesting, though, because they found 
um a shot creating guard in Maxi that they essentially would be searching out for uh searching for in the form of Damian Lillard or CJ. In terms of your defensive comment, I still really wouldn't even worry about that too much. But these side bulls, the truth, Joel Embiid is a legit rim defender. Tobias, I wouldn't give him great defender, but he could hold his own at the three. And then sometimes that's all you need when you play the three spot in today's NBA. Because, I mean, the wing the wing talent across the league is ridiculous. So being able to hold your own on that side of the floor is huge. Um, and they're competitive. Philly's, Philly's competitive on the defensive end, regardless of who's there. And I think CJ is, like, competitive on the defensive end, even if it's not, you know, great, you know, lockdown defense, Patrick Beverly style or something like that. So, I mean, overall, I think that one, I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's a great one to end on in terms of our top fives, just out of the fact that like, it's probably easily the most seamless, duh, this should have already happened kind of trade. Um, That actually is also the most realistic in terms of guys that's name has been thrown out there in the midst of situations involving not only Philly, but just the idea of a potential Portland rebuild with the fact that the team hasn't been good. Dame isn't playing up to his normal all-star caliber self. I mean, I think it's just, I mean, it's like you said beforehand, it's one of those that was pretty obvious and probably should have been happened already. So yeah, definitely agree. Transitioning to our question of the day for our fans who is a player that you would realistically like to see on another team? This has been a great episode today on the Hoop Talk podcast. Of course, make sure we subscribe to us on Apple. You rate our podcast five stars and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We will see you guys next episode. Peace.